All right, we are in Acts 4, 23 to 31. Last time, a couple months ago, it was about boldness in the gospel. Now it's prayer for boldness. Same theme, slightly different. Now here's what it says from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, everything in them. You said through your Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage? And the people plot futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers assembled together against the Lord and his Messiah. For, in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak God's message with boldness. That's a quick answer to prayer. Verses 23 and 24. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We need boldness, too. Too often we get intimidated by the hatred of the world around us and the hostility of the people that don't want to hear about Christ, our Lord and Savior. But we pray for boldness. Help us to be strong in the gospel, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, 23-24, Acts 4, Holman Christian Standard Bible. And after they were released... They went to their own people, that would be the Christian church, and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God. They said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. My dear friends, one thing we learn from this section is that the mystics who say, If you learn doctrine, it'll kill your prayer life, are a bunch of liars. Here we have proof positive that people steeped in Christian doctrine. God created a world out of nothing. God predestined. God has a plan. God has a purpose. They knew their doctrine, and they prayed. Boy, I heard that so much in seminary. Oh, if you learn doctrine, you'll dry up. Or we just have to be out here 
you know, whistling through the forest in our asceticism and our mysticism, then we'll pray. No, doctrine causes us to be people who pray. The more we learn about who God is, what he did, what he said, his nature, his purpose, his immutable attributes, the better we'll pray, the more we pray, the more reason we have to pray. My friends, when I lay 10 days in hospital bed, I prayed, God, help me. When I was helpless, I know the creator of the universe actually can hear my prayers and yours. Thank you so much. So they cite God as the sovereign creator in their prayer. There are a lot of people like Greg Boyd, who I debated, the open theist, who say, well, if you believe in predestination or if you believe in the sovereignty of God, then prayer is pointless, says Greg Boyd. There's no purpose to it. God's going to do everything he's going to do anyhow, and there's no point. But if the universe is open and even God doesn't know the future, then our prayers actually change history. Guess what? It'd be pretty bad if we were in charge of history. I think God has a better handle on it. Hallelujah. They knew that having access in prayer to the creator of the universe, they could withstand the threats of Jewish leadership. If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Amen. All right. Now I, as because of my voice, I changed my policy again. And I'm going to have you read verses. We need Jeremiah 10, 10 through 12, and Jeremiah 32, 17 through 19. What was the first one, Bob? Jeremiah 10, 10 through 12. Okay, I'll take that one. All right. Norm, why don't you be ready for the second one? Jeremiah 32, 17 to 19. Here's Jeremiah 10, 10 through 12. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath that earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding. He has stretched out the heavens. Wow. So what happens to false gods? They perish. See, we, that was good, but Adam, wasn't Adam wonderful last week? God stretched out to heaven. See, when they prayed in the Old and New Testament, they prayed to the creator of the universe who has all power. That's who we pray to. These false gods can't help anybody. They're finite. They die like humans. 
Jeremiah 32, 17 to 19. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by, thy, by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, who showest loving kindness to thousands, but repayest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is, thy, is his name. Great in counsel, mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Again, look at the theology. Mm-hmm. Learn theology and you'll have a better prayer life. Okay? Absolutely. So they're going to pray for boldness. 25 and 26. Here's another thing that you need to do if you want to have a better prayer life. Learn Scripture. Oh, yeah. In the New Testament, many prayers cite Scripture. The more you know Scripture, the more thoroughly and boldly You can pray. Oh, yes. This idea that ignorance makes you spiritual is a lie from Satan. Let's read it. You said, dear Lord, through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and his Messiah. Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Notice, you want a high view of scripture? Where did the scripture come from according to this verse? Dan, Holy Spirit. You said through the Holy Spirit. The scripture is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. We quote this on the radio a lot, but uh, I've been reading a lot of Luther, and he says over and over again, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. And if you're a, a pastor or an elder or a deacon or anybody teaching, And you want to see the Holy Spirit working in your church. The thing that you will do is preach the word. Thus we know the Holy Spirit is speaking to the people of God. The Holy Spirit comes through the word. Brian. It bothers me in the secular world. You'll hear people say after a uh, tragedy or something like that, they'll say, well, we want you to pray for us or we we need prayer for this or prayer for that. And they they don't really take it serious, whereas prayer is a serious thing. Uh, And again, when people say, uh, like after 9-11, you saw how uh, 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 people were flocking to churches and things. But then after a few weeks, that number dropped off. And, and these 
people are offering up prayers to who? They, they don't possess the Holy Spirit, yeah, therefore exactly. their prayers are not heard. Well, in official functions, they bring up an imnon, imnon, what are these guys? He's an imam and a, a Buddhist and a, this guy and that guy, and they all pray. Like, well, that's a good prayer. We covered all the gods out there. But as we just heard from the scripture, the gods that did not make the heaven and the earth will perish from the heaven and the earth. Do you think a God who's going to perish is going to answer your prayer? Another guy I know who's a liberal Christian said to me after 911, oh, our church did something great. We had a rabbi, an imman, Inman, what, I don't know what they are. I don't listen to them. And a Christian, we had that in our church. Okay, so what did you get out of that? Pagans praying. I hate to say it, the pastor was probably a pra- pagan too. Um, as long as we're talking about things that drive us crazy, Brian, um, this whole idea of Gods that will perish. Well, they aren't really gods in the first place, right? I mean, it's it's that's kind of the they're concept. They're created. Too. They're they're created. They're, and so that drives me crazy too. This god, that god, the other god, all these gods, Baal, everything else is they're just created. And but in reality, they're nothing but an imagination. Well, uh, sort of. There's actually two things, two categories. There's the mythological gods that are just wood and stone and silver, non-existent. But there are real demons. Demonic, yeah. And principalities and powers in the stoichia, they're real. But they're also created, they're fallen, and they'll perish. They'll be thrown in the lake of fire. So it's either or, but either way, they're not going to answer your prayer. Right. (laughs) Good. Good point. Thank you. Now, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. The Holy Spirit said, and then quotes Psalm 2, 1 and 2. Let me read that. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. Now, notice, okay, this will help us. A lot of theology here. How, as we go forward here, we want to see how they apply this. And in this prayer, the apostles and the other Christians applied this literally to what really happened in history, in time and space, on the face of the earth. We're going to see a literal fulfillment of Psalm 2, 1 and 2, right here. I don't buy this idea that we can't expect prophecy to be fulfilled literally. Because it was in the first advent, including right here and right now. You saw that DVD where I debated a guy. And I started with Micah 5 and verse 2. 
where was Messiah going to be born? Well, I don't know. Well, call the scholars and let's find out because I want to go kill him. Herod, right? What did they figure out? He'll be born in Bethlehem. Well, how did they know that? Because the Bible said it, and God cannot lie. The Bible is God speaking to us. God cannot lie because he is truth and true. Dr. Paul Hill from the New American Commentary says, all the details of these first verses of the psalm were applicable to the passion of Christ. And the Christians did so in their prayer. The raging nations represented the Gentile rulers and their cohorts, the soldiers who executed Jesus. The people of Israel were those who plotted in vain. Herod represented the kings of the earth, Pilate, the rulers, and Christ, the anointed of God. My dear brothers and sisters, every detail is fulfilled right here in this passage in front of us. Why would we not believe what God says? Do we believe there will be future Bible prophecy? If we want to be strong in prayer, we will learn Christian doctrine from Scripture. We will not go to the school of the mystics. Doctrine will make us prayer warriors. Doctrine! Wow. Some people think that's a dirty word. Well, we don't have doctrine in our church. I heard that from a pastor. We have the anointing of the Holy Ghost. We don't need doctrine. I said to him, okay, do you have a pulpit? Yes. Does somebody stand behind the pulpit? Yes. Does that person say things? Yes. Does he or she teach things? Yes. Well, then that's doctrine. Maybe you don't have biblical doctrine, but you got doctrine. It may be false doctrine. Rich. I, I think the reason the evangelical church is scrapping doctrine because it doesn't seem fair. Um, my old pastor said doctrine's not important. What's important is unity. So we have this let's come together and hold hands and sing kumbaya because it's fair and it feels good. And I think the secular world, too, is doing the same thing. I was watching a court case on NBC or whatever it was, and this guy broke into a guy's garage, and he was a perpetrator, and, that, and the guy who owned the house shot him, killing him. The guy who shot him and killed him went away for 70 years. He got busted, and the guy that broke into his house was a young high school kid, and everybody was crying and lamenting for this perpetrator. And the thing is, we're going by feelings in society as a whole right now, not by fact, but by feelings in the church and outside the church. Yeah, I know. Let me tell you a story about an email. I want want you to know how I use CIC to witness the gospel. I got a nasty gram from a guy who had read my article on spiritual formation where I claimed that it was not biblical. And the guy said... Your problem is you got a wrathful God who hates everybody. And you're always talking about God being angry and wrathful. And he said, I go to these uh, mystics, and they have a loving God. And then he wrote another email rebuking me for saying that God has wrath against sin. 
So I thought about those two emails and his rebuke, and he said, I bet you never tried spiritual formation. Like you experiment. You know what I wrote back? I said, if God doesn't have wrath against sin, why did Jesus come to bear God's wrath against sin? There's no point to it. And I sent him 1 Peter 3.18, and I said, Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust, once for all to bring us to God. I said, we need to come to God. It's not just that God has wrath. It's that he himself bore it for us. There's the answer. Instead of getting mad at these people, I try to point them to Christ and the gospel. But see, by trying to make God less threatening, they destroy the reason for the gospel itself. And I grew up in a church that was like that. So I admit, having sat all of those years as a teenager listening to theological liberalism, I don't really like theological liberalism. <laughs> but God uses what he allows us to go through as we get older in life. Now, look at this. Notice the fulfillment. In fact, what does that mean? It really happened. Psalm 2, 1 and 2 happened literally, specifically in history before witnesses. In fact, in this city, where? Jerusalem. Who? Herod. There's the kings of the earth. Pontius Pilate. The Gentiles, Israel, everything is since they assembled against your holy servant Jesus. But what did they do? Well, he's the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Well, what kind of prayer is that? Predestination in a prayer? When I debated Greg Boyd, the topic was predestination. And he railed against it. I mean, honestly, he went on and on saying that if this is the way God is, God's not worthy to be served. God can't predestine anything, according to Greg Boyd. But in that debate, I pointed out a lot of scripture and said that we need to know the God of the Bible who's revealed himself And here we have your hand and your plan. Those are the terms plan, boule, is a strong word for the will of God. Okay, God's will and purpose, boule, right here. And pro orizo, predestined, or to predestined, denote God's predetermined purpose. Now, in the theology that's taught in Acts, in Acts 2.23, this does not lessen human responsibility because they had Jesus crucified at the hands of wicked men. These godless men are fully and morally responsible and culpable 
for what they did. But yet God predestined what would occur. And we find this in a prayer. Wow. Let's look at Job 42, 2 and 3, if you want to turn to that. Now, have you ever studied the book of Job? Isn't that an interesting study? It can be a little tedious because for most of the book, a bunch of guys, three of them, that don't know what they're talking about, go round and round and round and round, right? They're saying this, they're saying that, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. They have no clue. And Job doesn't either. He just doesn't think he deserved what happened to him. God comes on the scene, right? And he starts asking the questions. And he says to Job, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? What about this? What about that? I have no answer. Now this, oh, it's not up there. So Job 42, 2 and 3 is the culmination of all of that. It says right here, Job finally says the truth. I know, he says to God, that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You know what they're saying? You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel in ignorance? That's what Job said to God. <laughs> How would you like to have to talk to God after you said dumb things? I guess we all do that. Here's his answer. Surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. Maybe God's purpose and predestined plan is a little too wonderful for us to know. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that karma is true. Everybody gets what they got coming. Is there anything more hopeless than karma? I know. People believe in karma, but all it means is evil will be perpetuated forever and ever and ever. Because you keep coming back for more evil. God triumphs over evil through the cross by what he did in Christ. It's a whole different doctrine. Now, verse 7. Turn to verse 7. Job 42. Now, so Job said something true. But what about these other guys who ate up 30-some chapters of Job? (laughs) After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. What was the truth that Job spoke? I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Exactly what many, many centuries later the apostles prayed when they'd been threatened and told not to preach in the name of Jesus. 
knowing the sovereignty of God, his plan and his purpose, you and I, my dear brothers and sisters, can go forth with boldness and preach the gospel. I don't care what that guy said in the email. God does have wrath against sin, but Jesus also bore it. Why bear God's wrath on your own? Come to Jesus. Okay, Acts 2.23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Two things are true. It was God's eternal purpose to send Jesus to die for sins. And those who nailed him to the cross are morally culpable for doing it. Can we walk and chew gum at the same time? As Eric says. I hope so. Otherwise, we're going to be like Greg Boyd and say, God doesn't even know the future. There's no predestination. There's no plan and purpose. God is in this eternal battle with evil with an uncertain outcome. And we got to help him. That's who I debated, Greg Boyd. Wrote 14 books at that time and had two PhDs. And I ended up there because John Piper pulled out. But, you know, I wasn't intimidated because the scripture says what it says. I just shared the scripture. I don't have PhDs, but the scripture says what it says. God cannot lie. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. Turn to Ephesians 1.11. By the way, while we're on this, the objection to predestination comes from people who think that God says predestination so that people will be hopeless and know they're going to hell and can't come to Christ. And that never, ever is said in that context. It's always about salvation. All right? The one who comes, Jesus said, I will no way cast out. You're not going to come to Jesus and say, I'm a wicked sinner. I've failed you. I've failed in every way. But I know you died for my sins. Please forgive me, Jesus. He's not going to say, sorry, you're not predestined. That will not happen. The ones who come, I will in no way cast out. These people will say, well, I'm mad. I don't like it. Forget about that and come to Jesus. You'll find comfort for your soul. Ephesians 1.11, also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Here are those words, predestined and purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Let's give God the glory and not rail against him. Let's trust what he says. They ask for boldness. Amazing how often that happens. Verse 29, Acts 4. And now, Lord, consider their threats. Grant that your slaves may speak your message 
with complete boldness. Why do we need this and why is it so prevalent? I'll tell you why. We're all, by nature, timid. Some people are brash or brassy by personality, but that's not the same as boldness in the gospel. I might be very annoying <laughs> to my wife, but that's not the same as a boldness in the gospel. Everything in the world is trying to silence us, and we need boldness, and so we should pray for it. It's thematic. I think I'll have somebody. Eric, you're a preacher. Get the mic. Could you read Isaiah 37, 14 to 20? I can. We'll see what Hezekiah did when he was threatened by Sennacherib. I think this is really cool. Yeah, this is good. Isaiah 37, 14 through 20. Verse 14 says, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Amen. Wow. They had theology in the Old Testament. (laughs) Hezekiah prayed a lot like the apostles would later. That God is the creator. Amen? I think it's pretty cool. He went into the house of God and opened up the letter from the enemy as if God can't read, you know, or God hadn't seen it. Look what they say. Look at what Sennacherib says about the God of Israel. And look at his threats. Does anybody know what happened after Hezekiah prayed this? Well, give it to Eric. He read it. Tell us what happened. The Lord wipes out the Assyrian army. 180,000 of the Assyrian army died. And we have secular corroboration of that from the Egyptians, which the Egyptians, of course, attribute to the work of their God, which is pretty amazing. The Egyptian God saved the Israelites from the Assyrians. But it gives us corroboration that, yes, this happened in history. It happened. God answered his prayer. So we have another instance of the same kind of prayer. I think we should be learning how to pray here today. Do you think so? Verse 30 and 31. While you stretch out your hand for healing, signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed... The place where they assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they took up an offering. No, no, it doesn't say that, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) 
They had a Betty Hinn meeting. No, it doesn't say that either. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. They received boldness. Hallelujah. So they ask, this is ironic. They ask for more of what got them in trouble to start with. You might think they'd pray, Lord, grant that thy servants keep their mouths shut so that we don't get into trouble. They didn't pray that. They prayed for boldness to speak the gospel. I need boldness to preach the gospel. So do you and so do all of us. Wow. Boldness, parousia in the Greek, can also be translated encouragement or even comfort, depending on the context. But here I think boldness is the right translation. Now, why was the place shaken? Is there any theological significance to that? I think there is. Dan, could you look up Exodus 19.18? I think there's an illusion, or it's a thing that happened that reminds them of an important time in their collective history. Exodus 19.18. 19.18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. Wow. So at the first giving of the Old Covenant, there was a shaking. And at the institution, or the institution of the Old Covenant, at the institution of the New Covenant, there was shaking. Hebrews talks about that. Uh, Luann. And now as you go through this, I'm sitting here kind of convicted because, like that says, they were, uh, after their prayer, you know, filled with boldness. And I think of the time sometimes when I'm so exasperated, it's just you feel like you're going over the same issues over and over to people that should know better. And then I go home so exasperated that it's like, okay, I just have to keep my mouth shut. I'm done. I can't say anymore. You know, it's just, it's just ugly. Okay. Uh, good. That's a good uh, question or comment. You notice, if we just look at what happened in Acts 2 through 4, which we've been studying, it wasn't that they convinced everybody. They, in fact, they didn't convince them. But that the word went out with boldness. That's an end of itself that brings glory to God. When I first heard that, where did I hear it? I think I know I, know I heard it when I heard John MacArthur speaking to a bunch of pastors back in the 90s. He made a statement that people gasped about. <laughs> and then he was asked to clarify it in the Q&A. He said, God is just as glorified when people reject the message as when they receive it. Either way, God is glorified. And people went, these are all pastors. What? <gasps> and so there was a kind of a hush or a, 
murmur, murmur, murmur. You know, 1,500 pastors there. And later, somebody said, well, how could you say that? He said, and it's coming from my memory from the 90s, because when people believe it, God is glorified in his mercy. And when they reject it, he's glorified in his justice. Go ahead and talk about that. I, I thought, I, I can't argue with that. God reveals himself in mercy and justice. Well, to consider that God created everything and God created hell. I mean, why did he create hell for? For his glory, like everything else. That's what MacArthur was saying. And I don't think any of the Arminians were very comfortable at that meeting. But uh, that's kind of how it went. And we were trying to learn. I know I was in seminary, and they were into the seeker movement. And I was being taught in seminary. I didn't believe it, that you got to make the message sound good to the unregenerate mind if you want people to come into your church. And so we were just steeped in this Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, all that. And I didn't believe that. But it was saying, well, you can't tell people God's glorified when he judges sin because it'll offend them. And to me, it's made more sense what MacArthur said. Because the Bible doesn't shy away from telling us that, right? And in Revelation, when these things work out, aren't they glorifying God in heaven? And aren't they saying, how long, O Lord, will you wait before you avenge our blood on the earth? So here's glorified saints and elders and angels crying out for God to judge sin. And he waits to do so because there may still be some who come and believe. And all of this was in my mind as a, as a person learning. And I thought, I got to go with the scripture. I can't go with what sounds good to man. Yes. Well, I, I was just going to bring up the kind of a hot button issue right now is the homosexual uh, de- you know, the marriage debate in the Supreme Court and how I think it seems like a lot of Christians are falling you know, by the wayside <clears throat> kind of surrendering to this issue and thinking that in order to be liked by the world we have to compromise that issue and to me it's it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's something that I think we need to be bold on we may not win the day on it but to be bold about that issue, it is, a, it is a gospel issue in my mind because we are trying to, to say, you know what, God's word spoke on this, and God's yeah, word is, is to one. be trusted, and we, we, cannot, yeah. we cannot fall by, you know, just because Obama and the, the Supreme Courts, uh, you know, decide against what Scripture says, who are they? I mean, Yeah, well, we need to be clear. Good question. Let me give you a couple of categories. There's God's providential will and his moral will. Okay? And Eric maybe want to say something about this. He's going to be preaching Romans. Providentially, God allows certain things 
that we know to be moral evil. That's what we saw with the crucifixion of Christ. Okay? And because of the hardness of heart, we live in a society where people want to be able to do evil and find some kind of uh, legal imprimatur. Well, we want to do this. Providentially, God may allow it, but it's still evil. So the church is here as the ones who know God's moral law. Now, on the other extreme, there are people out there that want to institute the old covenant again and execute homosexuals. They want to be like the Christian Taliban. Literally. Now, I would say that's wrong. Why? Because under the new covenant, God's giving people time to repent. And they may do what they're doing and go to the Supreme Court or whatever, but we're hoping they repent and believe the gospel and get delivered. Do you see the difference? We're not asking for the government to institute the law of Moses. We don't agree with what they're doing. We think it's moral evil. But we are saying to everyone, whatever their sin is, come unto me, Jesus said, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I knew people back in the 70s and 80s. We supported a ministry to help them who were in that world and that lifestyle, who got saved and got delivered and got out. They're serving God in victory. So I would say they're going to have to face God in eternity. But we got to be clear about what's moral evil and what isn't. And we would say that is moral evil. And it's not something that you want to have validated. It's something you want to be delivered from. But we would affirm the right for people to live out their lives and then have to answer to God at the end of the age of judgment. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. I was talking, uh, I think, with Norm last week. It's interesting that if you take the beginning of the homosexual agenda and go to Romans, like, 121, I believe, and start going through the dates, it follows almost exactly with Romans. And if you jump way forward to Romans 132, it's... uh, uh, give hearty approval to those who practice that. Exactly. Okay, and and that's where we're at today. It's it's not good enough that that we just look at them as uh, 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 we. I don't want to say accepting, but we we don't treat them bad or anything like that. But that's not good enough. You can they they want our approval. They want societal. Well, approval. see, but that that would be fatal. Here's why that would be a bad thing. Please listen, dear church. God delivers us from our enemies, not our friends. For me, I need to know morally what is sin. And if there is sin in my life, I need to know to pray to God to deliver me from it. But if somebody convinces me that my sin is a good thing, no longer will I see the need 
for God. Does that make sense? So as the church, we, have to, we want to preach Romans 1. Why? So we can feel superior to somebody else? No. So that we know what we need to cry out to God for to set us free. When we give hearty approval, there's nothing left to be delivered from, but only a certain expectation of judgment and a reprobate mind. Mike. Another aspect of the law, thinking about the Mosaic law, and then an extension of that in our current society, the law has always been a good teacher. And when we legalize abortion and we're going to legalize homosexuality, now it's law and these people are, are taught that it's okay. Well, they, they would gain false assurance that God approves of it. Right. And, but it's not true. But, but, I just finished reading a book I'm going to write an article about. America, it does not have a covenant with God. America is not Christian. America is not Israel. And we are under the stoichia. God draws out the boundaries of all of the nations. We're a pagan nation like all the other pagan nations. And if we somehow think, oh, all our laws are going to be perfectly biblical, where do we get the idea that was going to be the case? We're pagan. We got pagan leaders. We got pagans that get up and speak to us in the name of the government. And they're not listening to God or his word. And they probably never will. Why are we any different than these people? So we go to God and pray for boldness. God, we're in a nation that hates you. Our leaders don't believe the word of God. This is not Christian. This is evil. This is pagan. So what do we do? Right here. Pray for boldness in the gospel. Absolutely. Don't sit back and say, well, one of these days we'll have a nice Christian nation. Nobody will bother us. We'll just go about our business and live to a ripe old age and all will be well. No, my dear friends, we have a role to play here. Boy, I thought about that. I was just moment. I was within hours of dying. And I thought, Either, as I said last week, my sins are forgiven, and I'm part of the family of God. Now, I'm either going to be part of it here, where we still need to preach and teach the gospel, or I'll be part of it in heaven. And I know they don't need my preaching in heaven. <laughs> and whatever's wrong in my mind will get corrected soon enough. In the meantime, I have to have it corrected by the Bible. God kept me here. So I, by God's grace, I shall continue to teach and preach the truth of the gospel. And I'm happy to be with you, dear family of God. So on these issues, abortion, homosexuality, we should pray for boldness. But it would not be good enough if all the abortion mills shut down All the homosexuals became heterosexuals. We still have everybody going to hell. We need the gospel. 
And I don't want to think of somebody without the blood of Jesus covering their sins have to stand in front of God on a day of judgment. This one should be interesting. Oh boy, I only had eight slides. I'm not even going to get to them. No hurry. One more. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. This one shocked me when I first saw it 30 years ago or more. Paul, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. What? I remember reading this. I read Acts. There's nobody in the whole Bible more bold than Paul. Unless it's Jesus overturning the money changers. But of the apostles, bold was his middle name, it seemed. Bold, bold, bold. Why would bold Paul stood up to everybody everywhere, pray for boldness? Or ask for prayer for boldness? Because we all need it, number one. And number two, perhaps the prayers for boldness were why Paul was able to do that. They were praying for boldness, including for Paul. You know, when you go into a synagogue and you know they're all going to hate you if you tell them Jesus is the Messiah and they're sinful for rejecting him, that's what the apostles said. That's hard to do. We all kind of would like to have people like us. I just heard the story of a woman whose daughter swears she'll never, ever, ever speak to her again the rest of her life. Why? Because the mother went and spoke and warned people about the heirs of Roman Catholicism. Some people are more committed to the false gospel of Rome than they are their own family, and they will reject a family member for simply preaching the gospel. So the price is heavy. My wife was talking to this lady, and I said, tell her I'm proud of her, if you can say that in the right way, the boldness that God gave. You know, my friends, if we get intimidated and we lose the gospel, politics isn't going to save us. Do you think so? If we don't have the gospel... We might have an idyllic situation. Maybe we move to a small town and nobody's bothering us. That's not going to solve the problem. We need, God, we need boldness in the gospel. Pray for me that I open my mouth. We think Paul will do that, but we need prayer. It says in Acts 19.8, as we close, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly For three months, reasoning, reason in the church, have you heard such a thing? And persuading them about the kingdom of God. Dear saints, I love you. Thank you for accepting me 
back into the church in my weakness and uh, allowing me to participate. Um, one week I'm pushed in with oxygen in a wheelchair. And the next week I barely walk in with oxygen. And this week I'm teaching. So God has heard your prayers. And uh, I don't know about this voice. I think it would help if I never yelled, but I'm not very good at that. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, dear Jesus, for granting that we might have boldness to speak your word. May we not get waylaid or sidetracked, but may we be resolute about the gospel. Thank you for delivering us from eternal wrath and setting us in your kingdom by your grace. And we too pray for boldness in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.